0: Welcome to the Ready Yeti Podcast, where we tell the story of startups in the outdoor sport industry through the voice of their founders.
1: Hey guys, before we jump into today's episode, I wanted to take a moment to talk about the Ready Yeti membership. We've grown to have thousands of products from some amazing up-and-coming brands, anything from skis and snowboards, jackets, hiking boots, even supplements and snack bars. It's an incredible way to save a ton on gear, with discounts of up to 50% off. Join the Ready Yeti membership and do your part to help support some of these incredible small businesses that aren't just making incredible gear, but are also putting a lot of effort into social action and doing their part to create an environmentally conscious business. Join today at members and start supporting these amazing startups and saving a ton on gear.
0: This episode was originally recorded on February 19th, 2018. Since Forefront Skis is part of our current ski and snowboard giveaway, we wanted to bring this episode back from the
1: archives. We've cleaned up the audio a bit and hope that you enjoyed the episode with co-founder Matt Sturbins talking about his journey in building Forefront Skis. What is going on, Red Yeti Podcast listeners? Josh Salvo here, your host. On today's episode, I'm sitting down with the founder of Forefront Skis, Matt Sturbins. Matt, thanks so much for taking the time to chat with me.
0: My pleasure, Josh. Thanks for calling, bud.
1: Yeah, without a doubt. So uh, most of our listeners are definitely going to be aware of Forefront Skis as uh, you're, you've really pioneered um, a lot of the aspects of, in the snow sports realm, right? And Starting in the early 2000, launching in 2002, and becoming one of the largest privately held ski companies, right? Um, and then now partnering up with Jason Leventhal and Jay Skis, who obviously is the founder of uh, Lion Skis. Um, so I'd love to um, start off really with the, the the origin story. How did it all get started for you?
0: Well, it's a good question. I decided I wanted to be a pro skier uh, when I was in high school. And my family was adamant I would go to school. So While I said goodbye to a lot of my peers I grew up with skiing in Wisconsin who moved to Lake Tahoe, I went up to Minneapolis for college. And, you know, it wasn't more than like one or two postcards, which at the time, this is like the late 90s, that was a fairly relative way of communicating. I was just like, man, I got to get out there. And so, physically, I was trapped in the Midwest still, finishing up a degree, but mentally, I just knew I wanted to be in the mountains and see what I could do with what I had already started on in, in becoming a pro skier. So, uh, one thing led to another. Eventually, I graduated, moved to Squaw Valley, got a job in the parking lot, skied my face off day in, day out, year after year, and things started coming together. You know, uh, the sport of um, slope style became a relevant entity. Uh, I was pretty good in big air um, because I had a freestyle background, and I had a couple of sponsors that would help cover my way, get into contests and whatnot. I got a couple of pictures published, and I landed a sponsorship with Fisher. And at the time, Fisher, you know, like a lot of the companies, they were still wondering would anything develop out of this whole, like, free skiing culture. And those who were into the free skiing were definitely fired up to, like, develop new products because it really had a way of transforming the way we would typically look at the mountain. We were way more of a snowboarder-style skier. And we wanted a ski that was going to be versatile in those same ways. So. Um, you know Fisher was relatively cooperative they did welcome me into the design process of a new ski and I had you know zero engineering uh, knowledge Uh, I didn't even really know what I was asking for but I just took elements of skis that I had seen and said hey you know I like you know this part of that ski and that part of that ski and collectively I think would be a pretty rad thing and they were just so in the situation where they felt like we really got to put our best foot forward so we don't jeopardize our reputation, if anything, of this whole free skiing, like, fad materializes. And so we got the ski off the ground, and I was super hyped on it. And, you know, I was competing in the X Games at that point and giving this ski a lot of good promotion, uh, both in North America as well as Europe. And I came to them with the idea of, like, let's expand this range, you know. Let's, let's, let's see what kind of... Um, you know, opportunities are available for this ski to live outside of the resort and, and and explore some wider dimensions, explore some alternative cambers. And it just so happened that it was right around the 2002 Winter Olympics. And I think at the time, Bodie Miller was on Fisher. He was probably USA Today's, like, Athlete of the Year. And, you know, just the hoopla that comes with the games. I mean, we're in it right now. And uh, I was just like, so what's up with this free skiing project? They're like, yeah, you should be grateful you got what you did. And I was like, cool, well then this is my last year skiing for you guys because I don't see this being a, a window of opportunity that's going to last very long. And if I have some momentum with the ski that we've already designed, I might as well take that and craft a new brand that is solely dedicated towards, you know, this growing segment in skiing and see what we can really do in, in rounding out the, the community that is growing within and be rid of the, the speed events and the European race brand uh, heritage that, was really confining the development process it was really stifling the creativity and so yeah i mean forefront was kind of like a just something i came up with and wasn't fully sure how i wanted it to go and i spoke to a lot of peers of mine at the time that i was competing with about this idea and you know line was in was in the marketplace armada had just started to kind of show itself i think on the the glacier that summer and i was just like man if you're going to do it, this is the time to do it because assumably this will become a saturated category as well. And, uh, my friend Derek Taylor from powder magazine just called me on the blue and was like, yo man, I heard you're starting a ski company. And I was like, Oh my gosh. Um, and he was just so happy to be also the same journalist who called me when, uh, I was invited to the X games, which that was a really big deal for me at the time to get that phone call. That's kind of how you were invited back in the day is you just got like a phone call. and um, so yeah, he hit me up and he was like, "Dude, I think this is awesome. Tell me about it." And I, he really just put my head, you know, cemented me to it. I had no real way of backing out of it at that point. So I started calling people, figuring out what snowboard manufacturers existed uh, within California. I was in Tahoe, so we found some board, um, some board manufacturers down in LA. And uh, you know, one thing led to another, and we started making some prototypes. And by spring of 2002, we had skiable prototypes and. Uh, we were showing up at the magazine shoots and showing off our new brand forefronts. Wow, man, it's totally wild!
1: It's crazy to me to think that at some point in time that freestyle wasn't as big as it is right now <laughs> because it's such a yeah. huge part of the sport. Um, it's crazy to think that it, it really it wasn't at, at one point. It really was just the European style of like racing, and that was really um, it, right? And then snowboarding critic came along, and then. And then you guys, you, Jason, and Armada really got things rolling, which I think is crazy to think about.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, racing had, you know, they had developed really side cut. You know, they they started to you know, implement widespread side cut and ski shakes by then. And we were like, cool, good move on the side cut. How about a twin tip? And they were like, we just got done with side cut, you know, and really they weren't <laughs> even saying side cut. They were saying parabolic.
1: Right. You know? Yeah, yeah.
0: And we were, like, like, adding one more layer on top of it. And they were just like, man, do we really need this kind of, like, rapid innovation? Because, hell, skis look the same for 30 years. We just introduced Sidecook. Can we run this for 20? And, you know, maybe it was around for 5, 10 years, and we're like, dude, this thing is already super stale. Skiers my age don't want to ski. They're all snowboarding. Let's throw a tail on this thing and, and, and explore skiing backwards. And and they, they were really treating it like uh, snowblading you know which had a hard time being accepted and ultimately like you know faded away but they really thought like the twin tip ski thing was just the cousin to snowblades and in Jason's opinion probably was you know he just saw it as a natural evolution of the snowblade and you know it was just a whole mindset as a skier um, which I don't disagree with but I didn't I did not identify myself as a ski boarder at the time you know I was just a, a tra- transitional freestyle skier into wanting to become a twin tip skier and the very few twin tips that actually existed i mean that was some of the core's culture in skiing at that time i mean if you spotted somebody from the chairlift on a pair of twin tips you'd roll up to that person you know sight unseen and befriend them immediately and be like yo where are you skiing because <laughs> yeah. you're on a ski that's capable of skiing in a way that everybody else on this hill can't and so let's you and i go into ski together like what's your name cool like let's go ride and You know, that's just like, that was kind of part of the thing. And then 1 plus 1 is 2, and 2 plus 2 is 4. Before we know it, we have like a U.S. free skiing open. A couple of magazines are out, really promoting the sport's, like, humble beginnings and and really, like, honoring those who were were part of the fundamental start of it all. And, you know, it's just, everything started just becoming, you had to have a twin tip now. You know, you not only had to have a pair of side cut skis or a pair of box skis, you also had to have a pair of twin tips. And that really gave the sport its, like, necessary boom that, um, you know, propelled athletes into paying sponsorships and created events and, and magazines and really noteworthy discussion in ski community. Um, but, you know, like everything, it's like, okay, those 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 brands that didn't want anything to really do with it, that, that very lightly invested in it initially, they all came back to it. Even though they said they really weren't into it and they wanted to invest in race and everything else around the Olympic Games, they eventually were listening and turning their eye to it and Well, yeah, there was some independent brands that started. I feel like we really proved to them because of our tenacity going on and cultivating a new brand that like, no, this is here to stay. And if you want to sit on that side of the fence, that's fine. But like we're going for it. And they had no choice but to look at what we were doing. And that's when I really started to understand that the um, the egos that lie within the ski industry these big brands. They didn't want anybody to tell them what to do You know, we came to them with an idea to just turn up the tail of a ski and their very first reaction was no You know And I don't know if that's just like what they're trained to say or what or just because they didn't have that idea that they just Immediately refused ours or if that we were Americans and they you know, they were just like, you know, just another trend coming from the States But <laughs> you know, we, we were really trying hard to bring those brands into our vision and they weren't coming around nearly quick enough for what I saw to be the limited window of opportunity. So building forefront and then, you know, welcoming peers of mine who I was competing against at the time who saw the world the way I did, bringing them into the brand, also to design skis with me started to really round out our whole vision of being like a rider owned ski company and, you know, sourcing manufacturing and all that other stuff came second. Um, but really we just wanted to get this brand and this community of skiers together and show that like no we are a Long-lasting entity and as long as there's brands Ride our own brands, you know independent brands that are committed to these specific disciplines. These disciplines are always going to be alive and well It's it's the other brands who just kind of come in and out of it because there's a sales trend associated with it that really jeopardizes the existence of that category, you know if if uh, if free skiing says, like, okay, everybody's over twin tips, whatever, everybody wants to go back to conventional flat-tailed carved skis, which isn't that far from the truth. Like, all those big brands wouldn't have any problem discontinuing twin tips. Like, I was just at the trade show, you know, in Denver, and walking around with Jason Leventhal, And, you know, he he's obviously twin-tipped for life. I mean, every ski he makes for Jay skis is twin-tipped. And we're walking around looking at skis that are twin tip and it was becoming very difficult to find twin tip skis at all at the trade show.
1: Really? That's yeah. actually interesting. That's pretty interesting.
0: Totally. Well, it's like what's going on? Like, oh, they don't sell. Like, okay, so you make these like hardcore twin tips for these top level athletes and you pay them, you know, good money and good for them that they get paid that. But you're just using that to create publicity for the brand so you can sell these front side all mountain carvers. And they're like, that's exactly it. And I'm like, well, don't you think there's some innovation that's being overlooked that kind of bridges the gap between the two? So he and I spent the next two days at the demo just skiing skis that were like 100 to 110 underfoot that had any kind of twin tip. And, I mean, it took the vendor of, like, what, maybe 30 brands? It was maybe five brands that made a legit twin tip that was over 100 underfoot. That's crazy. And, uh, yeah, so I don't know, like, if it's just, like, those big brands, as soon as, like, they see, like, a shift in momentum, they just, like, slip right back into their carb mentality, and, like, now, like, these, like, all-mountain skis are those crazy engineering projects, you know? There's all this talk about technology, there's these crazy topographic uh, constructions where you see, like, you can see through the ski, the ski has multiple different elevations, there's I, you know, metallic emblems embedded in the skis, they got crazy molds, 3D technologies, and it's like, man, what happened to the shape (laughs) story, you know? Like, just carving a sweet shape that made sense for a particular style of skier or a particular environment. Like what happened to that, that whole, that whole, that whole era, you know, everything immediately switched back to this technology story as if like, Oh, we've already explored all the shapes that need to exist today. So now we're just going to take the ones that everybody liked the most and just throw a bunch of technology at it. That's going to be difficult for anybody without an engineering degree to understand. And, um, So Jay and I were actually just kind of like blown away that there weren't just more variety and shapes of skis at the show this year. They were all, a lot of the shapes were the same and people were just talking about the different technologies and weights of everybody's ski. And, um, you know, free skiing is going to continue to evolve with or without the big company support because of brands like Forefront, Jay skis, Armada, um, to the extent that they can continue to run the show that they want to. But, um, it's getting harder and harder to really stand out and, Um, we see that as an opportunity, you know, to just be more authentic, be more who we are and and less of who we aren't. And so that's really kind of the the foundation of Jay and I's partnership. You know, when he bought the brand, it was like, well, what is Forefront doing exceptionally well? And what is it doing to just satisfy retailers? You know, um, because there's a, a, a broad Rolodex of ski shapes that you need to produce to satisfy your dealer's needs. You know, it's not just that they need a ski. They need a ski in like two or three price points, you know. So what well, should have just been an isolated ski shape for a category? Now you have three competing skis for that category. It makes it way harder to market your story about what skis are really standout skis when you have to diversify the construction of one ski over another because the retailer needs to have a $50 cheaper ski or whatever or, or a package price ski that they can add a binding to and do a special during the holidays um and we were becoming victim to that you know we were producing a lot of obscurity in our range because we really wanted to try to grow the volume of the business with the retailers and in the end it softened our whole like our whole portfolio of product because you couldn't really tell which were the most authentic forefront ski shapes in the range and which were just those that were made because that's what the market was asking for so you know jay and i our first thing we did was have a look at the whole range that we had for this season and decide what's going to stay and what's going to go, you know, and it's, it's been a pretty dramatic, um, it will result in a fairly dramatic shift of, um, of variety. Um, but we anticipate that the volume will grow a fewer skis so that we can be, you know, a little more, um, transparent with our intentions per category and not leave it to the consumer to have to make you know, a decision between two or three similar skis within Forefront. It's like, you come to Forefront, you want all-mountain ski, here you go. You want a backcountry ski, there it is. You want a freestyle ski, this is it, you know. And we hope that that will help increase the authenticity of our approach to ski shaping. And, um, yeah, you know, it's. Uh, I think it's something that's necessary to maintain the identity as a freeride brand, you know, when there's all this other competition and saturation out there. So... That was kind of our, our strategy initially with, with when Jake bought into bought the brand. It was like, let's talk about what this brand is doing exceptionally well and, and get rid of the things that it's not. And one of which was just like shrinking down the product list, eliminating some SKUs that just, they weren't high volume SKUs and they were SKUs designed to support retail. And then once we got rid of that whole discussion, then it was like, well, okay, so what do we want to do with retail? And, you know, that became a way bigger topic and has become a wildly fascinating shift in strategy for me. You know, I wasn't an online marketer to start, but like when we decided that we would have to have control of our own destiny, irrespective of whatever we had published the initial sales prices to be, I mean, if we had skis that were worse, you know, if we had a bunch of narrow skis and it was snowing a bunch, it was going to be hard to sell those skinny skis. People wanted fat skis. And if we were tying ourselves to retail, um, prices and dealers were were relying on us to hold those prices so that they could also get a sales a profit margin out of the sale of product. we'd limit our ability to to react to the to the market's trends and so we came to the conclusion that you know we're going to have to offer any of the dealers that want to stay on the forefront the opportunity just to buy from our website and then they would earn a margin off of whatever the listed sale price is for that product at that time And then the rest of the time, we would just make those products available direct to consumer. And by nature of, you know, ultimately um, selling directly to that end user, we can offer them a more um, aggressive price point where they're going to pay less than what they would have historically from us. But at the same time, our average sale price internally will go up because we're not having to build in this, you know, um, 50% profit margin for the retailer. So the is getting skis that they want, not just what they can afford. And meanwhile, Forefront's increasing its average order value because we're not having to preserve the wholesale margin that we once did. And if a, re- and if a retailer wants to, we're happy to discount our margin to make room for them. But at the end of the day, like the, the main focus is on the end user and getting the end user excited about our products and the prices that are appropriate for our end user's interest. And so that was a big exercise this fall in just determining what have we historically listed our skis to sell for. And then realistically, what are people willing to spend? And it be- it became fairly apparent that our skis were, uh, were a little overpriced for the direct-to-consumer model. So we switched it up. You know and in August we launched that that, that uh, sales campaign get the skis you want not just the ones you can afford and I think it made a lot of sense for our audience you know I mean the forefront skier is somebody who like walks into a ski shop and most likely judges the buyer for why they chose the skis they did to bring into the store you know I mean that's right. like a much that's a much deeper level of insight as a consumer than what you're expecting for people who buy things just at brick- and-mortar retail. You know, I understand if like you haven't bought skis in 10 years, and you need to up your ante and you got the boys coming out that you used to ski with and you want to have a good time and you want to be, you know, the leader of the pack. Yeah, you need new skis and you should go to your local retailer if you have been following along and take their word of advice, you know, get an awesome pair of skis that are appropriate for your mountain. That's a beautiful model still and it's very relevant. But the way that we work with our audience, I feel like Forefront is a source of 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 inspiration, it's also a source of knowledge and insight into how athletes are interacting with products and people have really like, you know, opened their ear to what our athletes say about ski design and how they are incorporated into the design process and therefore they become very knowledgeable about the ski building process themselves Um, and they understand the language which we speak internally about what makes one ski different than another. Turn radius, effective edge, running surface—you know, mid-running surface. You now, far beyond the rocker and camber and side cut story that you typically would hear at retail. And so, you know, if that's our audience, these guys are so, these guys and girls are so affluent in ski discussion already. Well, then naturally, I think they just want to get to the source of where these products are coming from and have a relationship with that manufacturer. And we desperately want that. You know, I mean, if we can hear from our audience, every person who buys our skis, we can hear from them and get feedback about what they experience, good, bad or indifferent. That'll help us further advance our product line, too. And when you sell just the retailers, like you just hear the same feedback from the same account base you had last year. And sometimes they're just going to tell you what you need to hear. You know, um, they might even lead you astray into designing certain skis that aren't right for your brand, but just make sense for their store. Right. Um, but when you sell skis to the end user, they're like, "Yo, this ski is awesome. It blew my mind." Or this ski wasn't what I thought it was, you know. So we're offering money back guarantee. Like if you don't like them, just return it. No big deal. I mean that's the way it has to be. You know, we're asking you to take to to trust us that we make great skis and that these skis are right for you. But if they aren't, we have to back our word and just assume just the same as I would assume a retailer would. So now we're in, now we're in the retailer position. But we also have the manufacturing role that we're using to help merchandise the sale. And when we get get the consumer's feedback, I mean, that's stuff that comes directly, um, you know, into the product development's conversation, you know, because we know that this is feedback coming from an end user. Uh, It was hard enough just to get sell-through reports from a retailer, let alone have them tell you what one of their local skiers said about a product they bought from them. You know, I mean,
1: yeah. No, how I'll many totally skis you got left on the wall?
0: <laughs> how many skis, yeah, how many skis you got left on the wall? Like, you can't get a call back, you know?
1: Yeah, um, no, that's a really good point. That's a great point. gives you full control but, and really understanding of yeah. who, of what's happening with your products and what your consumers think. Yeah.
0: So, yeah, I think that's, it'll help, it'll help set us up, you know, so we can be more accurate, more authentic. And we'll know exactly who we're selling skis to and what the types of things that they really find value in Forefront, you know? And I think we could just utilize their feedback to guide this ship to be the best it can be for what it is, you know? And that's exciting for me, you know? That's really exciting.
1: Yeah, no, definitely. I, I have so many questions <laughs> I could ask from that. Um, yeah. So I'm going to get back to the the um, the partnership you have now with Jason Lementhal and and him uh, essentially buying Forefront. But before that, I kind of wanted to start uh, back from 2002. So you talked about this uh, in the beginning. You're, you're sort of talking about the start. Um, and obviously, you're working with Fisher, and you that was the first model you ever built or designed, helped design. How did you go from the launch in 2002 to then uh, really building that grassroots uh, following and really growing into one of the... Uh, the largest private uh, ski brands
0: sure well initially i leveraged camp of champions which was a ski camp in whistler and i was i was a ski coach i transitioned from a digger um which you know was just an unpaid gig and it was really a privilege as a skier to even get up on that glacier with those guys because they were hand digging their half pipes and skiers could really help them excavate the the slough on the wall you know when they had to cut a new transition and we could really help move that snow from the top of the wall to the bottom and we could do it in a very smooth way so skiers kind of got a hall pass even though it was an exclusive snowboard camp well you know hope hopefully we could take some of the credit but i think just generally the ski community started to impress the snowboard community with it with its advancements in in free ride and so the owner's like oh let's let's build this into a ski camp as well so i I think was probably at the time the only responsible person willing to answer their cell phone or (laughs) or emails. And so I took on the role of a head ski coach. And there, you know, orientation night, we would just have to cut everybody's ski poles in half and remount their skis to center if they wanted any (laughs) chance at trying to learn how to do tricks, you know. And there was just so many retailers who hadn't even, like, yet adapted to to Twin Tips. Um, And online retail wasn't that strong at that time. So they really were at the mercy of their local retailer. And if those buyers didn't buy into it, then those consumers just didn't get exposed to it. So when they'd come to camp, we'd have to reorient their entire program. And sometimes that's all we accomplished. You know? Um, but a lot of them, you know, they had disposable income and we would love taking them to the shop and sell them skis. And I was like, well, man, I could be selling them skis in my own. And we could be doing this, you know, organically ourselves. So, you know, at first I was leveraging forefront through the ski camps up in Whistler at Camp of Champions, you know, getting all the coaches on forefront, getting all the campers on forefront. And, and really witnessing the progression that was being had. I mean, it was a real deal, you know. It wasn't just a, a way to sucker these kids into giving you some money. I mean, they became better skiers overnight because of it. Um, and that was kind of our initial step. And then obviously working with the athletes who at the time were, you know, very much pioneers of their discipline and welcoming them into the shape of um, Uh, The shaping process of developing a new ski um, unique to their needs and then leveraging their audience and their fan base to follow what Forefront's doing because now they're an advocate for it. And I think, you know, just that kind of, um, you know, organic um, endorsements and engagements started to build up our popularity piece by piece. Obviously, you know, trying to leverage my career, whatever notability I had in calling dealers and just asking them to buy my skis. Uh, I don't think they were accustomed to having a a ski company owner ever call them specifically and try to make a deal. And they were pretty taken away that, like, you know, we really wanted to grow this thing and they could have a role in being part of that. And while they didn't need Forefront, they felt like it was something cool to be a part of because it really added some flavor to their ski wall and made them feel like they were part of the evolution of of skiing and, and, and being very much a leader in their community of free skiing. So I think that's kind of how things started rolling, you know, and we had a lot of press, you know, magazines needed things to talk about and skiing hadn't changed much, you know, up until then. And then all of a sudden, boom, we got like two or three new magazines, you know, we got website communities popping up and everybody's talking about what's happening in skiing. And then, you know, Forefront just happened to be, you know, a brand where people could relate to from the youth demographic all the way up to, you know, middle age, because they saw either... A lack of relevancy in the way, way they skied as a kid to what it is today or they saw that it was just an aspiring way to grow up as a skier and not be a snowboarder so we had a we had a lot of opportunity to get exposure for ourselves just because we were talking about something unique that you know people hadn't heard of before and let alone like like disclose how we were going about it building skis you know much of that stuff was very private coming out of europe until we started you know there wasn't a lot of discussion about how skis were being made or talking about the trials and tribulations of trying to build skis in a snowboard factory. I mean, I think people were really intrigued by that. And it was it a was good subject matter to just kind of get people listening. And then, yeah, piece by piece, we'd start selling product. Not all of it was perfect product. You know, we were still learning how to do it as we were in market with it. Um, no one in the history of Forefront... I guess Jay really probably sets the first precedence of somebody who actually has ski industry experience. <laughs> like, I don't want to, like, say that <laughs> the wrong way.
1: Yeah, you no, no.
0: I don't want to say the wrong way, but, like, Jay literally, you know, built a brand, sold a brand, built a brand. He's built, he's built several brands, but two noteworthy ski brands in his career so far, and now having him involved in Forefront, like, it's really rad to have his influence because he has legit ski industry experience. And until he came in and acquired the brand... We really didn't ever have anybody that we welcomed into the company that was a legit ski industry expert. I mean, we pick up a couple of seasoned sales reps here or there, you know, but they're just trying to, like, you know, flip the script. You know, Um, nobody internally, like, we didn't hire, like, a a veteran ski graphic designer or um, a a veteran marketing manager. We never hired a PR agency, you know, in the U.S. that had history marketing and selling ski companies. I mean, everything was just done organically you know and and maybe to a fault i don't know but we were just trying to be authentic try to be us and i didn't feel like we needed anybody else's advice because we just had a really clear vision of what we wanted to be um and uh and you know when jay came in it was just like listen you guys have done an outstanding job with the brand and the products the product is is rad for expert skiers but it could be it could be more broadly adored if you made some changes that were more appropriate for everyday skiers um because right now some of the ski shapes were very demanding um you know for an everyday skier you know who wasn't skiing every single day or didn't have the kind of vertical we have in the wasatch you know to just you know hot lap a chair with a thousand vertical feet every day um so he brought a different perspective in terms of how we can mix up with the product and uh and also just the you know slim down the range and become more precise with how we market and communicate this brand and start selling directly to the skiers and stop wasting our time packaging these stories with the hope that retailers will tell them for us. We needed to tell those stories first to the end user, you know. And for a while there, we left left a lot of storytelling to the third party, you know. People within the trade, we talk about these different, you know, projects or these different challenges or successes we had in creating new collections, and then we would hope that those those listeners would go home and tell their their community about it. And I just don't think that that story was being told as well as it could have been. And so that's an opportunity right now that we believe we can, you know, take advantage of while communicating directly with the skier and the end user. So kind of got off topic a little bit, I guess. But that's no kind of how, you know, how Jay had an influence on things.
1: So, so how did things get started with Jay, and when, how did the idea of him acquiring Forefront even really come up?
0: Well, I, I mean, I, I had some time with Jay, you know, early on, SIA, um, you know, in Vegas. We were, I was building the booth by hand, and so was he, you know. And he was, you know, at the time, I really, I really had a lot of respect for him. I was skiing. Um, with some of his athletes in Tahoe, Skogan Spring, Dash Long. Um, and these are you know, were some of his like top dudes at the time online. And so to have his, you know, support for what I was doing with forefront was very honorable because I only had assumed that he would consider me to be competition. You know, I, I again I didn't have any skiing experience, so I didn't know how people would perceive what what it was we were doing if we were trying to step on their toes. And for the big brands, that's very much how they felt. You know, they're like, what do do we need you guys here for? You're just making it harder now for us. Um, And so Jay was like, no, man, we need you guys. This is awesome. Um, And he was always, you know, offering tips um, to how we could do things more efficiently as a brand. Um, And I really, you know, I really respected him for that early on. And I always stayed in touch with him. And eventually, you know, through his transition out of line and into J-Skis, I would always stay in contact with him, talking to him about, you know, what were some of the strategies that he was focusing on and, and some of his discoveries once starting up with J-Skis. And, you know, any chance I could get to, like, pull him aside at a ski demo or a trade show if he was walking the aisles, I would. And when we were looking at the business and kind of looking at how we were going to – transition out of this wholesale retail model into something more direct. I mean, it already stayed, I had already taken the steps and already started the, the, the groundwork on doing so. But it wasn't happening quick enough, and I didn't know at what pace it really needed to happen. I just knew it needed to happen. Something had to happen. Something drastic had to happen to stabilize the business. And opposed to, like, just, you know, offloading it to a, a, a larger competitor um, who would just plug us into their existing distribution model and see if they could squeeze a few more bucks out of their accounts? Jay came back to me with like a really robust idea of how he's built Jay Skis and how the things he's learned doing so can be applied to Forefront, and we can really create drastic change in a short period of time. And his his confidence in 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 that you know strategy was extremely inspiring, and so that's kind of what eventually led to, like, him acquiring the brand, you know? Obviously, at first, it was, like, let's do, like, a, you know, joint joint venture, you know, things like this. And then once you start to walk down that road of, like, what do things look like in six months, in 18 months, in three years, in five years, it just made sense that he would just become, you know, the owner of Forefront. And he put together a company and bought the assets of Forefront Skis. And I then... Um, yeah, you know, became a a minority owner in his company that he started to buy Forefront and stayed on as the brand director. And now he remains the face and name of Jay Skis. I remain the face and name of Forefront. And together we're working harmoniously on the marketing and sales strategies while also leveraging, you know, the uh, internal resources for which both brands can share. That's really interesting. Yeah, you know, it's really just, you know, uh, economies of scale. You know, how can we, you know, merge our resources? I think he's excited about taking what has become a proven business model with Jay Skis and applying it to a 15-year-old brand. And do you get the same type of reactions? Can you get the same type of forecasted results with an existing brand going through change versus a brand designed for that model? You know, right? And if we're if we're successful converting Forefront then sky's the limit because now we have a proven business model that can not only start up a business with this model, but it can also, I wouldn't say resurrect, but it can, it can, it can drastically transition a company who's suffering at retail into a a prosperous direct business, you know, without weakening the brand, if anything, forefront, the brand is going to, is going to strengthen because of what we're doing. Um, because we're the ones telling the story, you know, we're not relying on others to do it for us.
1: Yeah, no, it's really interesting. It's definitely something that's become a lot more possible in, in the last you know five or so years, even ten years, with with the rise of the internet. People used to always say that like no one's going to buy skis that they can't see, touch, you know, or even demo. <clears throat> At least that was always the the argument against starting a ski company, right? It's just like, well, totally. what if you're not around in a year? You know what I mean? Or right? You know what? Like like why would why would anyone take you seriously? And it's really I feel like Forefront J, you guys are really proving that you can build that personality behind the brand and, and create that following and really offer something unique um, that's that's different than uh, retail or the normal way in which they've been doing it, which is okay. like That exists and that has its place, like you're saying, and what you're doing is sort of um, a separate thing.
0: Yeah. Well, every time I have a chance to interact with a consumer, I always thank them for their trust because yeah. I know that's a huge part of what's going on here. You know, Forefront has enough history of making quality product. Not that we've been perfect from day one. We definitely had some periods there where we needed to improve our program. But we've had a a long enough run now that people have faith in what we're doing. They know our product's legit. And they know the people behind the brand are trustworthy. And so they vouch their support and buy skis from us with the expectation that we're going to deliver them a really high-quality product that's perfect for their needs. And when they write to us, I'm like, thank you so much for, for your support, for believing in us, for your trust. Um, and we'll do everything we can to make sure you are 100% satisfied. And I think that's just how it has to be. And as a brand, when you're selling through wholesale, you don't really have to take that long time with the end user. You know, you publish a warranty statement, and if they got a problem with their product, you send them to the local dealer. And you just hope that the local dealer embodies those type of morales, that like they're going to do whatever it takes to make that customer happy. You know, some of them are, some of them aren't. But now that when you're the one selling the ski to the end user, you have to be also that you have to back your retail element, but you can really accentuate that by, you know, being also the manufacturer and saying, hey, like, here's exactly what's going on with the ski. And. Either I'm stoked to hear that's perfect for you. If it's not working right for you, I know that this next ski shape will be the one you're looking for then. And, uh, and work with them to make sure that they're 100% satisfied. That's been really cool for me, um, just that engagement. And, man, it's crazy. Like, you can ask pro skiers all day long about what they think about a ski. And, you know, you can kind of get a predictable response. And then we throw out, like, consumer surveys or whatever at people. And we get the most wild replies. And like most of the time, what the consumers are saying is probably the most accurate response that we want. You know?
1: Do you remember some- any of those wild responses? <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. Well. Um, so we were we were working on um, we were working on figuring out whether or not we would um, develop a new uh, freestyle scheme. And it was something more specific to park skiing, um, and not so much around all mountain. And, you know, we, we kind of had these different, uh, categories listed that, you know, kind of split up freestyle. Like here's competitive freestyle. Here's like recreational freestyle. And then here's like all mountain and big mountain and powder and touring and mountaineering and all these things. And you know, the, the skis that the athletes were asking for were like these 110 plus, you know, um, full rocker twin tip skis, you know. And and like there was a lot of uh, enthusiasm for different shapes um, and different geometries that we haven't experimented yet in that segment. And so we sent out a consumer survey and overwhelming reply was that they on average wanted to ski somewhere between 90 and 100 underfoot with a side cut radius below 20 with camber. And all the athletes were begging for us to make these like very obscure brands that had like super you know wide profiles and, and longer turn radiuses. But then the consumers came back and gave us a ski that was like way more turny and way more um, uh, reactive inbounds than out of bounds. And so you know, when you're about to sink you know, 20, 30, 40 grand into molds, um, with your factory you know you kind of only get one shot at it and when we had that survey come back to the consumers we are grateful to hear their replies because we would otherwise probably invested in more skis that would have just appeased a very small percentage of actual users um, and that would have probably been a load of money that we wouldn't have ever gotten a return on and you know we don't have a lot of extra money to like just build molds and see how it goes. I mean, everything that yeah. we build has to come back in some form of a return. Um, and the factories don't want to just build, you know, 50 out of one mold. They want to build 500 out of a mold. And so you got to make sure that whatever it is, your new project, you have to be able to back that up with volume um, to make it worth their while as well. So very grateful that we have enlisted the, the end users in inter- Interests and, and and get a feel for what they were asking for outside of what just our team was and so you know Right there alone just like proved to us. that like we need to be way more um, Conscious about What our audience is asking for and not just what we think would be cool internally I mean you need to have a balance right we want to surprise people too with the stuff we come up with You know, and I think that's fun as well to be surprised when you see a brand introduce a new product that's like totally out of the box and then somehow it's, like, totally practical as well. And then you all of a sudden realize, like, how did I live without this thing, you know? <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, we want to have that as well, of course, you know. But, you know, it needs to be done with, with the end user's opinions uh, and best interests as well. So, um, you know, that's, that's just, like, a, a small but broad example of how uh, influential, you know, a consumer survey has been um, for us and, and how we intend to continue to to leverage that kind of insight going forward, even to like prior to this conversation, we're talking about how it is we're going to stylize this new logo. And Jason's like, Hey, let's do an Insta story with a couple of options and see what people say. And I was like, yeah, that's, that's going to get a great response. That's going to be a great response. I literally texted this right before he called. And I said, the only downside of it is that if we choose a logo that people said, and even if we don't choose a majority vote, you know, let's just say, I think if anything, if we just put it up there and people actually comment on it, just getting that, like, the fact that people wanted to, to tell us what they thought, I think would be very inspiring for us to know that, like, we have a very active audience, actively listening audience. Like, let's let's utilize them. So I'm like, the only thing that is bad that I think could come out of this is if we choose a logo that people didn't like, that people chose not to. Um you know, whatever we have two or three logos and, and, and we ultimately choose one, all those who didn't vote for it will feel disappointed that they didn't get their logo picked. And he was like, man, we're gonna be constantly evolving graphics and logos. you know, as trends come and go, like this brand's gonna continue, to, you know the, the brand's this tall, it's gonna eventually be that tall. it's gonna be it's this wide, it's gonna be that wide. it's like you have to continue and you have to you have to allow continuous evolution. And, um, I think the only way you can evolve is if you incorporate the end users opinions, because they're ultimately the people that we're trying to appease that we're developing this product so that it makes their next ski experience, um, unforgettable. And, uh, you know, we can only, we can only pick what's right for them and be only so accurate if you don't include them in the conversation. And so selling direct, you have that immediate feedback available to you. So why not use it?
1: Right. It really, It's really important to uh, use your customers to sort of figure out what direction to go in. Um, see, you alluded to this a little bit, um, but I want to ask, where, where do you see Forefront going in the next year, five years, ten years down the road?
0: <clears throat> well, we are uh, – <coughs> excuse me. There he is. <clears throat> um, sorry. No worries. Uh, we <clears throat> we are looking at narrowing the collection down, right? I mean, we talked a little bit about that already. And by doing so, we'll become a little bit more authentic in our approach to designing ski shapes. We're going to design shapes that are appropriate for our consumers. They're going to challenge their perspective on what they expect out of Forefront, but at the same time appease their interests. Uh, We don't want to shock them with skis or force them into certain types of skis that aren't ultimately appropriate for their needs. But we want to give them a ski that's going to inspire them to be a stronger skier or a more fluent skier or more more intuition in when they ski that they ski can be as reactive as they ever had imagined. Mm -hmm. As we continue to cultivate this direct to consumer strategy, obviously we want to build out the brand to become, you know, a more uh, widely credible resource of cutting edge technologies and also, you know, maintain our leadership in this free ride exclusive category. Uh, you know, Jay would say it's just skiing, everything's skiing, but I also believe that like free skiing has a culture which needs to be preserved which was what made it cool in the beginning that will maintain its coolness in the future. And that's something that I really want Forefront to be an active um, leader in, Um, ensuring that athletes are involved in product design, Mm. merchandising our product through stories that are coming from the designers who are the athletes, who are skiers just like those who are selling skis to and making it feel as though it's a very communal um, brand entity and that those who are skiing on Forefront are actively participating in the evolution and design of Forefront. Um, I've always strived for complete transparency. But when selling through wholesale, you have some limitation into fully transposing who you are. Because most of the communication being done through a third party. Now with the opportunity to, to network and sell direct to end users, we can share with them the deeper story that perhaps wasn't being told to them in the past. And, and through that engagement, get their excitement for what it is forefront is, is, is and also becoming in the future with them on board. So I see that an opportunity where people can feel very engaged with the brand, you know, obviously increasing social engagements and increasing uh, email engagements. Um, Not so much doing like more so events and, and big demo tours and things of that nature. I mean, we're a really small company and to remain viable, uh, we have to be, um, you know, we have to maintain a very small, but focused infrastructure. And so, you know, we're really going to try to do our best to virtually merchandise the hell out of this brand and bring a lot of authentic content and stories and sensible design discussions to the consumer's attention so that they understand exactly what it is we are, what we stand for, and and what we are striving to become going forward. So I think authenticity, transparency, you know, community, those are like some big words that I put right there next to uh, you know our core values as a brand and I want to really reinforce those more so now than ever
1: what what's the best part about running forefront
0: uh, seeing people on the hill skiing on forefront <coughs> I think seeing people on the hill skiing on forefront that's the uh, hands down probably the coolest part of being involved in forefront Witnessing somebody having a great experience on the hill with friends, being active, being in, the, in nature, and realizing that that ski is a vehicle that allowed that experience to happen for that person, you know? Um, I always say that that's probably the biggest paycheck you'll ever get in the ski industry It's just the, the enthusiasm, excitement of somebody using your product of whom is this completely unknown to what, to what, to who you are or your involvement in the product? You know, I love just complimenting somebody on the chairlift randomly when they ski up on four fronts and just ask how they like them. Most people, I don't care what brand they're on. They're probably not going to tell you they hate their skis. <laughs>
1: yeah, probably not.
0: <laughs> you know, so, you know, you kind of get, you know, Expect you get an you cannot you can anticipate what they're going to say, um, so it's a bit of a loaded question. But sure, it's still a it's cool still, feeling. <laughs> yeah, it's it's still cool to strike conversation with somebody to leave my identity secret, so I could just hear what they have to say and and get a feel for you know what they're all about you know on and off the hill. Um, so that's that's a that's a huge re- reward for me in working with forefront always has been always will. I don't think it could ever be beat, you know?
1: Yeah. So for anyone who's listening, if someone asks you what you think of your forefront skis, it might be the founder of the company.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Totally. Yeah. yeah. I I think I've had like some of those engagements, even myself where I've, you know, talked about a product or whatever, um, unrelated to skiing. And I had no idea who it was I was talking to. Um, certainly that was the situation at fisher early on when i told them what i thought about what was their first attempt at making twin tips and you know i gave it to him fairly straight i didn't realize who it was i was speaking to i guess it was like the global product director or something like that but i kind of just threw it at them. i threw it at them straight that i felt like they were jeopardizing their credibility for all they built up in ski racing if they didn't take free skiing more seriously And develop a ski shape that, you know, is far more progressive than what they had. And, you know, all of a sudden, six months later, I'm at the helm of a design project. And a year later, I'm being flown over to Europe to test it and compete in contests on it. And start this whole global marketing campaign because of it. And it was just because I, you know, happened to land at the table with the right person at the right time. And I had the right angle, you know, but it wasn't, it wasn't pre-orchestrated. I was just trying to be real with them. So yeah, for, for what, for what it's worth, like, I hope you just tell me the truth when I ask you about your forefrains on the chair, (laughs) (laughs) because it'll probably have a pretty big impact on what it is we do with Ray in the future. You know, if you just tell me they're great and I'm having a great day and I'm going to feel really good about that, but it's not really going to make a change, you know? Um, We were testing skis, you know, and Jason and I were going back and forth on these skis this, this earlier this week. And the only questions we asked each other was, "What didn't we like about the skis we were skiing on?" Right. You know, it wasn't what did we like. I mean, they're all great skis. You know, I, there's there's a lot of things to say that you like about. You'll end up losing train of thought. Um because of the variety of things you did like, um, but oftentimes it's the things you don't like that can be more easily uh, communicated, you know, verbalized, and and that would lead to a much more constructive discussion about things of which we want to focus on ourselves with our products. So maybe that's what i'll start asking people like, what don't you like about your skis
1: <laughs> yeah i'm sure i'm sure you'll get a whole sl- you'll be surprised by your hey, answer yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah
0: I'll probably end up probably end up changing my initial reaction then and saying that that's probably not my favorite part about four because <laughs> because starting asking people to let me know what they don't like and it just leaves me in a shame spiral after skiing every day but <laughs> no it's all right we got a pretty tough skin we could take it we like the critical feedback
1: yeah, no, that's the best thing. Like, and you have to be when you're when you're building something. You just you're not going to do it perfectly, and that's okay. And you're always going to be looking to improve it, and that's that's the most important part. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, Matt, I appreciate you taking the time to uh, to chat with me. It was really awesome hearing your story and how you got started and everything that you're doing with with Forefront uh, now and in the future with with, uh, with Jason Leventhal um, but for listeners that want to keep tabs on everything that you got going on in the future where's the best place for them to do that?
0: at forefront.com you know scroll down to the bottom put your name in the newsletter look us up on Instagram or Facebook just at forefront skis and um, yeah man I'm answering emails every day so fire away I'm at Matt at forefront.com matt at the number four frNC.com email me tell me what you think i always ask people to email me and they never do so be be one of those people that actually does it and uh yeah let's meet up and go ski and i'm in utah but i travel around a lot just with the company and all the various events so give a shout out and let me hear where you're where you're coming from and what you're all about and if you got an idea for making a rad ski i'd love to hear about it let's make it happen
1: definitely will matt i appreciate you taking the time
0: cool thanks for the call josh i appreciate it dude.
1: If you enjoyed today's podcast episode, then we would be incredibly appreciative if you could log on to iTunes and leave us a quick review. This really helps us get noticed by other podcast listeners like yourself. And if you know anyone that would benefit from this episode, then please share it along. Well, that wraps up this episode of the Ready A Podcast. We'll catch you guys next week.